Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Thanks, J.D. Um, and I also have a couple things. Him, you would call him esteemed because it's not any kind of like, it's not like any uppity thing. It's not like he demands it of you, but in one, but in another way, his presence and his friendship does kind of demand it. Um, so uh, I know he's, he's been here for uh, some of you, and it's the, the years have passed by for, since you've been at Lindenwood. Uh, but some of you, if you were at Lindenwood, I hate to say long enough ago, uh, you may have had Dr. Bobo, but we are so grateful for, uh, for Luke to come and talk to us this morning on uh, engaging, uh, basically integrating our work and our faith. So I'm going to have Luke come up. Let me pray for you. And, um, and Luke is going to lead us this morning. And if you can't learn from this man, you, you're in trouble. Is that, can I say that? I can say that. There is no way he's going to possibly let down this. <laughs> All right, 100%. That's right. 90% of the time, it works every time. All right. <clears throat> let me pray for, uh, for our time together. God, thank you for the gathered people of God. Um, this is a gift. It is a gift to be able to gather together, to worship you, to sing, to remember, reflect, to be together, to encourage one another. Thank you for friendships. Thank you for Luke, his passion for you, uh, learning and growing, not only for you, but also for your people. And not only for your people, but for your people and how they engage in everyday life and work and faith and what that looks like. And then his willingness to take that and pour out into students, into fellow learners, and this morning into us as a, as a church. I'm grateful for his friendship. Uh, I am excited to hear from him uh, and learn from him. Uh, knowing ultimately that any and all gifts that we have are from uh, the giver of all good things. And so we rejoice in that and uh, ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And kids, elevate, get out, go. I mean, elevate, be encouraged to go to elevate right now. And that's, and we're good. Good morning, Refuge. It's good to see uh, so many Lindenwood students that uh, I taught, and you survived <laughs> these many years. And um, Trey, thank you, the Mizzou lover. I'm a KU lover. Just, just to make the point, so there's no confusion. What a, what a delight to be back and to uh, be invited to uh, come back to Refuge. And I really love uh, these practices of mission, uh, especially engaging in public faith. Our faith is not to be uh, private only. Our faith is also meant to inform and to serve as salt and light in public. And can I get an amen on that? Amen. Yeah, someone did a hearty amen over here. Amen. And so the passage I would like to preach on is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And I'm only going to preach on verses 1 through 4, but I'm going to read all 11 verses. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so it may sound a little bit different. So Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Of course he would be. Then the tempter approached him and said, if, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. I've been thinking a lot about the word uh, please. Please. Uh, this word, please, can be used as a verb or an adverb. So, welcome to English grammar class. So, if I were to say to my son, son, please take out the trash. That's using please as an adverb. It's a polite requests. And I would, I would argue that parents, that's one of the first words you should teach your kids is, is please. And then the, the second set of words, thank you. The word please can also be used as a verb, as to cause to feel happy and satisfied. Smelling Highlander grog coffee in the morning. Amen. I love smelling this coffee. God says this of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I was pleased when, dare I say, the KU Jayhawks won the national championship. <laughs> Ford Motor Company had this jingle once upon a time called quality is job one. For the Christian worker, pleasing God is job one. And it's good to see um, Brother, Brother Herwick back there. Pleasing God is job one for the Christian worker. We are to please God in all of life, in fact, as parents, as worshipers, as spouses, as caregivers of elderly parents, as citizens of the United States, as residents of St. Charles, as neighbors, as Monday through Friday workers, God has called us to please him in all of life. Yes, God cares deeply about how you do your daily work. Paid or unpaid? Because some work we do, we, we, don't get, we don't get paid for. How can we please God as we do our work as tradespeople, plumbers and electricians, as Boeing engineers, as mom, moms and dads that stay home and raise the kids, as social workers, as therapists, as elementary, middle, and high school students? Yes, students. Your workplace is your classroom. And that's the question I want to pose and answer for you this morning. How can we please God as we do our work? How can we please God as we do our work? So that brings us to our text, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4. Jesus is one step away from entering his public ministry that Matthew describes as teaching, preaching, and healing in Matthew 4, 23. This one step that Jesus must uh, climb or pass are these three temptations or three tests. I would argue that these are three tests in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Yes, I believe God is 
the proctor of this test to his son. God just uses Satan as his agent for this test. We know this is a test first, be, first because God is the one that tests. Satan is the one that tempts. We also know this is a test because verse 1 says, Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would not lead the Holy Son of God to be tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is led to God's classroom for a round of testing. Every day in your jobs, God serves up a test of obedience in your workplace. That can be under a sink, fixing pipes. It can be in a ditch. It can be in your home. It can be in an office. But God constantly serves up tests to see if he, to, to see what is in your heart in terms of, of obedience. And just like God used Satan as his agent to test Job, God does likewise here with his son. And Refuge, I know you guys love your Bibles. And so when you see the words wilderness and 40, I, I know that rings a bell for you. Yes, this passage is reminiscent of the Israelites' testing in the wilderness. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. You see, God wants us to keep his commands, and that's really a heart matter. We obey God because we love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God tested his people to understand their motives. Were they just going through the motions? Or do they truly love him? Were they motivated by love to obey God's commands? And Refuge, I need to ask you a question. Do you truly love the Lord? And I, I caution you not to answer too quickly. Do, do you truly love the Lord? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so it shouldn't be very hard to get us to give. or to love our neighbors as ourselves, or to do justice. If you truly love the Lord. And if you're not there yet, and that's okay, what are you doing to cultivate the love, love for God? What are you actively doing to cultivate love for God? He, he loves you. He sent his only son for you. That is clear. But what are you doing to cultivate love for God and love for neighbor? Do you truly love him? Do you truly love him? The people of Israel had a lack of trust or faith in God. The same God that rescued them from the bondage of Egypt. They failed to learn. <laughs> they, they were knuckleheads. They were difficult students. They grumbled. They wanted to return to better food options back in Egypt, but also to brutal work conditions. The people of Israel failed their wilderness tests. Jesus, on the other hand, passed his wilderness tests. Jesus is man and God. He's human and divine. That still just messes with me. How is that possible? But in his, as a human man, he got thirsty, he got tired, maybe even sick and tired like Fannie Lou Hamer would say. Jesus got, Jesus got angry. 
And after 40 days and 40 nights without food, he was really, really hungry. He was vulnerable. He was weak. He probably was irritable, like I get when I'm hungry. But Jesus, his first test was presented as a temptation from the tempter, the devil, if you are the son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. With this first test, the tempter tempts Jesus to use his divine power. And we know that Jesus has the power because he fed 5,000, he's fed 4,000 with meager rations, so he has the power. But Jesus passes his first test because he does not yield to this temptation. You see, uh, my friends, we too, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can say no to Satan in his temptations. But it reminds me of a St. Louis pastor who says, sometimes we just make it too easy. We, we give in much too easily. Jesus passes his first test. Jesus does not commit any wrong because he does not yield to Satan's temptation. And notice how Jesus responds to the devil, to the tempter in verse 4. It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I still remember Hans Beyer, my professor at Covenant Seminary. He said, the three words it is written suggest that the New Testament writers and Jesus considered the Old Testament as, as authoritative. But what does that mean? For the Old Testament to be authoritative. To say that the Old Testament is authoritative means that it, that it is trustworthy and true. It means that we must... We must submit. We, we must submit to this word. It means our lives must be governed by this word. This word is still binding on us in, in the 21st century. So that means we must read the Old Testament. That means we must read the New Testament. To say that this word is authoritative means I consult this word when it comes to how to live, how to vote. I once told some college students in Illinois, some Christian college students, this. It's irresponsible to vote like your parents vote. It's irresponsible to vote like you always voted. That's irresponsible. That's not consulting God's word. To be authoritative means I consult this on how to do justice. I, I hate the phrase social justice. This talks about biblical justice. I consult this word when it comes to how to steward the money God has entrusted to me. I consult this word on how to think about critical race theory, about abortion. This is authoritative for living. So whatever comes after it is written is still binding for us as Christians. So what comes after it is written in our text is actually a repeat of Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what was Moses saying? What, what is Jesus saying? Every word that comes from the mouth of God as, recording in, as, as recorded in this Bible is true truth. As Dr. Schaefer would say, true truth. 
Every word that comes from the mouth of God is divinely inspired. Every article, every adverb, every verb, every subject is divinely inspired. We can, we can trust this word because God is worthy of our trust. Every command God calls us to obey is for our good. And for the good of others. I remember when our kids were younger, we would tell them, we're putting this, these rules in place because we know what is best for you. In the, in the same way, our good father knows what is best for us. So his commands are for our good. Because God is good. And he wants our good. Can, can you imagine driving in St. Charles with no posted speed limits? We, we need we need limits. We need rules. We need commands. Refuge. If you truly want to live the good life, <laughs> and our culture offers up a, this is, uh, many options on how to live the good life, but if, if you truly want to live the good life, a life pleasing to God, rely on the Holy Spirit to trust and obey God's word. So I was asked to preach on faith and work integration. So what does this passage have to do with faith and work integration? And I would say everything. So let me just be clear. When I speak of faith, in the context of faith and work, I speak of faith as Jude 3 does. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Here, faith means this body of truth. So when I speak about faith and work integration, I, I mean this. Our unwavering obedience to this body of truth in the workplace. Our unwavering obedience to this body of truth in the workplace. Maybe that's why someone said the next reformation is going to happen in the workplace. Several people have said that. This means, of course, this means, can, can, I, can I just beg you? That means we must, we must study and read God's Word. That, that means we must study and read God's Word. That means we must study and read God's Word. Can I say it one more time? That means we must study and read God's Word. To live a life pleasing to God requires that we obey his commands. To do our daily work in a way that pleases God requires that we obey this body of truth in the workplace. So I hear you, Refuge. I hear you asking all types of questions. How can I obey God's commands in the workplace? Answer, we must rely on the Holy Spirit. We all receive the Holy Spirit as salvation. Why should I obey God's commands in the workplace? I want you to write down this, this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 through 24. But it's verse 24 that's key here. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 through 24. Verse 24, listen, listen very, very carefully. Why we should obey God's commands in the workplace. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statues to fear the Lord our God 
for our good always. <laughs> Did you hear that? The reason why we should obey God's commands in the workplace because it's for our good always. That, that sounds like a guarantee to me. For our good always. <laughs> Why should I obey God's commands in the workplace? For our good always. <laughs> There's not many guarantees in this life. But this is a guarantee. Well, maybe you, maybe you don't want any good in your life. For our good always. And Trey, Trey has told me that Refuge has Boeing engineers. I used to be an engineer at Boeing. I was, uh, I was there when it was McDonnell Douglas. Trey told me that you guys have computer programmers here in this church, a few social workers, therapists, stay-at-home moms. And I love what he wrote here. We have some glorious tradespeople, which are often not given much respect. <laughs> I want to change that. Because everyone needs a plumber every once in a while. And they, their respect goes way up. <laughs> so Luke, what are some commands that I should follow in my workplace so that my daily work is pleasing to God? What are some of these commands? That's a great question. But first, a commercial break. Let me say a few things about work before we get to these commands. Number one, Trey is not the only one in full-time ministry. Trey should probably say amen. If, if, if I read Ephesians 4, 13 through 16 correctly, when the Apostle Paul says, equip the saints for the work of ministry, he also meant equipping, preparing you all for your Monday through Friday work. Guess what? We're, we're all in full-time ministry. Congratulations! Because to be called a full-time ministry means you've been called to full-time service to your neighbor. We're all servants. We're all in full-time ministry. Now, I'm not naive to believe that Trey's task to equip you is easy because the workplace has changed quite a bit quite a bit since I was an engineer. For example, a pastor wrote this. He pastors a woman who works in an office setting and this woman is expected to take diversity, equity, and inclusion training. No questions asked. And at the end of the course, she was expected to write a pledge that she would not marginalize, but rather empower sexual minorities. What was she supposed to do when faced with a mandatory exercise like this? The same pastor passes a teenager, a recent convert to the Christian faith. One morning, she walks into the restaurant where she's a part-time worker and her boss takes one of these rubber things, a rainbow bracelet, and shoves it in her hand. And she looks around and all her co-workers has this rainbow bracelet around their, around their wrists. What is she supposed to do? I, I really hope I really hope that Refuge has a robust discipleship program here. <laughs> because the workplace is quite different. And, 
And I'm not calling you to be a moral relativist where you endorse every, every morality of people that you work with. You, you must stand on truth. But it may cost you. But you still must stand on truth. You, you, you cannot shy from standing on truth. So we all are in full-time minutes. Number two, to work with your hands, your head, and your heart is not a curse. I don't know where that heresy came from. It's not a curse to work. You, you may feel like cursing someone out at work. I advise you not to do that. I know work is not a curse because on the opening pages of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, God is not introduced to us as Redeemer, but he is Redeemer. He's not introduced to us as King, but he is King. God is introduced to us as a worker in Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't believe me, look at Genesis 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. The, the word work there refers back to what God did when he was creating stuff. God is introduced to us as a worker. And not to mention, Adam and Eve were co-workers to keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, before Genesis 3. So work, work is not a curse. So back to these commands. What are these commands you should follow in the workplace? There's so many here, so I just chose three. Three commands to follow in the workplace for our good, for your good, always. The first command to obey while you work, love your neighbor as yourself. Your clients are your neighbors. Your co-workers are your neighbors. Your boss is your neighbor. For for you who stay home with your kids, your kids are your neighbors. For kids in school, your classmates and your teacher are neighbors. How do we love our neighbors as ourselves in the workplace? By showing up and doing ethical work. Andy Crouch would say, by doing redemptive work. And my students are here, so they will attest to this. I often told them, you can love me, your neighbor, Dr. B, you can love me by turning in typo-free work on time. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we love our neighbors as ourselves in the workplace by treating everyone with dignity and respect. Able-bodied people we treat with dignity and respect. People with disabilities. It's really shameful how we treat those with disabilities. We have to treat the disabled with dignity and respect. You see, we're all disabled. I have, a, I have an invisible disability. You, you can't see it, but I have one. And guess what? You do too. And this reminds me of something my dear friend and brother and former professor Jerem Barr said. If, if he were to come to a church and he wanted to know what kind of leader you were, he would not ask those who reported to you. He would ask the janitor. So if Trey did a workplace visit to your place of employment and he said to the janitor, could you come over here and tell me about, tell me about this, this worker? How, how do they treat you? How, how do you treat people that clean up the bathroom or serve that starchy food in the cafeteria? How do you treat the least of these? I, I think I heard that phrase just a moment ago. 
how can you love your neighbor as yourself at the workplace? If a, if a co-worker is struggling, uh, volunteer to buy them a cup of coffee. Take up the slack and do, their, do some of their work for them. Service that offers priests. You are a priest. You know that, right? You are a priest. Pray for them. Now, that's pretty novel, isn't it? Did something fall out of my pocket? If a co-worker is mourning after the loss of a loved one, send a card or flowers. You <laughs> moral imagination. There are many ways to love our neighbors at work. If you see someone being treated unjustly, speak up. Enron, WorldCom, are businesses that went out of business because someone didn't speak up. Or E.F. Hutton. Remember E.F. Hutton? Some of you older folks. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. That company went out of business because something unjust was being done. How can you love your neighbor at work? Remember the golden rule. Treat your co-workers, treat your boss like you want to be treated. First command, love your neighbor as yourself. Second command, to obey while you work. Do your best work. Listen to Colossians 3, 23 through 25 from the Message Bible. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters, and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ, the sullen servant who does shoddy work would be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. My, my students, again, will remember this. I said it to them constantly. I would tell them, I'm not your professor. Professor Jesus is your professor. Doesn't he deserve your best work? Didn't I, didn't I say that? So your, your boss is not that person or that female. Your boss is Jesus Christ. And doesn't he deserve your best work? The Christian should never be accused of doing shoddy work. <laughs> Do your work as though the deliverable will be delivered to Jesus Christ himself. An expense report or an assignment or a computer program, whatever. Dorothy Sayers, writing in the 20th century, said this. The only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. So if you're in school, young people, if your school gives out awards for the best student worker in the universe, you should get that award. Well, that's, that's kind of outrageous, but I think you know, know what I'm trying to say here. If you're a young person in school and they have an award for the best student worker in the universe, you should get it. And for us older people, if your company gave out awards for the best worker this side of the arch, you should receive it. <laughs> so I'll share two commands to obey while you work. Work that pleases God. Love your neighbor as yourself and do your best work. The third and last command comes from the Old Testament. This is not an attractive command. This command doesn't get a lot of hype in this faith and work space. But that command is we must take a Sabbath. Read Exodus 20 this afternoon. I would say most of us, if not all of us, are chronic Sabbath breakers. 
And that's how a pastor in, in Kansas City described himself. And unfortunately, that man ended up in the hospital because of a heart attack. Just as I was coming to uh, St. Louis, one of my former students texted me and said, Dr. B, you remember that, that lesson you taught us on the Sabbath at Lindenwood? Do you still have it? I said, I sure do. He said, would you send it to me? Because he said, last year he got so wrapped up into the grind. He's in his early 30s. He's married, has a son. He said, I got ca so caught up that it, that it ruined me. You see, some of us have health problems because we break the Sabbath. Remember, God says his commands are for our good. If, if we keep the Sabbath, it's, it's good for us. Many of us are, are burned out. We, don't have little, we have little margin in our lives. But God says keep the Sabbath because it's good for you. The, the, the only thing that can work and work and work and work is a robot. You're not a robot. Now tell that to Mr. Boss Lady or Boss Man. I'm not a robot. I'm a human being. God, after his six-day work week, he rested. God arrested. Genesis 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. God took a Sabbath. God, God sat down and kicked up his feet. God slowed down and enjoyed a sunrise. God sat down and smelled the roses, or he might, might have smelled Highlander grog. I don't know. To take a Sabbath means to walk away from work. To take a Sabbath means to turn off the computer, not respond to text messages or work emails. To take a Sabbath means to cease from working. And I hear, I hear you, Refuge. I hear you again. Dr. B, look, my work is too grueling. It's too demanding. Well, guess what? God allows us to get creative with our Sabbaths. Abraham Haschel a Jewish scholar puts it this way. If you work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. Like read a book. He goes on to say, if you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. Cook a meal. I try to cook a meal. Do some gardening or build a deck. D didn't you build something when you were on your sabbatical? Yeah. He, he, he worked with his hands. A Sabbath is good. My Sabbath begins on Friday evening, and it runs through Sunday morning. I don't answer work emails. I try not to read work-related material. I don't look at Slack. Now, do I, do I obey the Sabbath perfectly? I'm going to say it like my daughter would say, heck to the no. But I keep pressing. Because I know it's good for me. Because all of God's commands are good. Parents, when you take a Sabbath break, you communicate to your kids, for our household, we will trust God. Parents, when you take a Sabbath break, you model for your kids, all work and no Sabbath can lead to idolatry. And you heard Trey allude to this, an idol will, will demand more and more and more of you. It will kill you. It's a, it's a counterfeit God. Parents, when you take a Sabbath break, we say, we communicate, we model to our kids, it is more important to obey God than anything else. So I've given you three commands. There's many more in this, this body of truth. Three commands to do at the workplace, work that will please the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself, do your best work, and take a Sabbath. So to integrate faith and work means we must obey God's commands while we are on the J-O-B. 
So when we keep married, our faith and our work, obeying God's commands while we are working, we push back on our workplaces because you probably do know our workplaces are forming us. We form our work, but our workplaces are forming us as well. You might say it this way, our workplaces are discipling us. So when we obey God's word, we push back on that discipling from the workplace. When we keep married our faith and our work by obeying God's commands while we work, we not only worship God, but we make God known. We make God look good. We make God look good. And I want to end with this story, and it's, it's a beautiful story. It's And when you hear this story, you're going to say, Dr. B, you're making that up. But this is a true story. So this church in in Tempe, Arizona, um, took seriously all of life discipleship. They took seriously faith and work integration theology. They took seriously this body of truth. So they had a mixture of workers like refuge does. They had trace people, they had entrepreneurs, they had social workers, they had computer programmers, they had students. And they taught, the pastoral staff taught the church this, this rich theology of faith and work integration. And these people took it to heart. They, they, they applied it in the workplace. They, they practiced it Monday through Friday. And something amazing happened. This is, this is the part you, you would not believe. They, they put it into practice Monday through Friday. So the church began receiving knocks on the door from employers. Could you send us more people like that? Can you send us more social workers like Shelly? We, we need more social workers like that. Can you send us people like Ralph? We need more plumbers like him. Tempe, Arizona, yeah, it's a true story. Can you send us more people like Debbie? We need more engineers like that. Can you send us more students like your son or daughter? We need more students like that in our school. (laughs) I'm not making it up. I will introduce you to my friend Jim. He can probably tell the story much better than I can. Well, will people in St. Charles, will employers in St. Charles come knocking? Can you send us more people like Kayla or Sarah or Jeff? Jeff is a hoot. You guys know Jeff? (laughs) Jeff, raise your hand. I love having classes with Jeff. He, he had me in stitches. That's why Sarah's laughing. Yeah, I know it's true. I still remember the things he said, or most of them. I don't know if a refuge would be that church where people come knocking on the door. I hope so. But God calls us I'm using my favorite word that my pastor at the University of Kansas said, beloved. Beloved. God calls us to work in such a way that God is pleased. Beloved, do you remember the question I posed to you earlier? How can we please God as we do our work as tradespeople, as Boeing engineers, as stay-at-home moms and dads, as social workers, as students, as therapists, as elementary, middle, and high school students, how can we please God? Our daily work pleases God as we obey his commands in the workplace by loving your neighbor, by doing your best work, and by taking a Sabbath. I'm going to say amen to myself, even if you don't. Amen. What's next, Trey? Do I sit down? Okay. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is so beautiful because, God, you're so wonderful and beautiful as well. And, God, there's no, there's no God like you. There's no father like you. And, God, you don't give these commands because you want to reign on our parade. You don't, want, you don't give these commands because you want to box us into a, a small backyard. God, you give your commands for, for our good. For our good. For our good. And God, may we trust you. May we trust you and obey your word in the workplace where it can be difficult. And I pray for Trey and the staff here that they will equip these, these folks entrusted to the care very, very well. So maybe refuge will be that church where people come knocking on the door. Can you send us more people like that? And Lord, we love you. And we don't love you perfectly, Lord, so cultivate a love in us. Love for you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and a love for our neighbor. God, you are amazing. 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 So, Lord, help us in that Monday through Friday workplace. Help us, O oh Lord by your spirit, to obey your commands, to obey this body of truth. We adore you, Lord. We it just, It's just unbelievable how much you love us. And may we love you in equal measure. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.